Thank you to our music team and our sound team. And it's good to see you all this morning as we continue together in our time of worship. I hope that for you, the singing time is not the only time in which you have worshipped this week. And we will continue to worship in the Word of God as we have in song and in fellowship and even in our vocations and our lives this week. It's a privilege uh, to be able to honor God in everything we do. That's just sometimes we forget everything from brushing our teeth to how we greet our boss to the way that we respond when mommy wants us to clean off the table is all worship at some level. But would you pray with me as we begin? Father God, we do desire that we would offer to you the worship that you so richly deserve, that we would acknowledge the weightiness of who you are. And I confess, even this own week, how easy it has been for me to be distracted and caught up even in the good things that you have given and to lose sight of the gratitude that you are due, of the awe that you are owed, and of the way in which you are to be acknowledged through unceasing prayer in all things. And so we desire this morning that you would draw our hearts back to you, perhaps renew that affection that we have for you, that we would see in your Son and we would see in your Word more of who you are so that we might worship you not only with a full heart but to do so with a mind that understands you correctly so that our worship will be acceptable. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 7. We'll be reading our passage this morning. John chapter 7, as you are able, I'd invite you to stand with me as well as we read. We'll be beginning in verse 40, and we'll continue down almost to the end of the chapter, to verse 52. So would you read with me the words of God? Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officer said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And all God's people said, Amen. I know that's the passage you've probably been meditating on all week in your quiet times. Uh, But I think we'll find that this is a rich passage indeed. Uh, Kids that are here this morning, I hope you got your kids' bulletins on the way in. And you can try to keep up as best you can. If you saw the title of our message this morning, it is Schism Through a Prism. Believe it or not, I didn't pick schism because it rhymed with prism. I actually started with the word schism and needed something that rhymed with that. 
and we'll see why as we get later. But I'll bet some of you kids at least know what a prism is. Anybody know what a prism is? What's a prism? I heard something over somebody over here. Where was it? I heard a yes. What's that? No. No. We're going to talk about prisms in just a moment. But as we jump into our passage, I want us to remember where we're landing. If you recall, uh, John has kind of got a pattern going. Jesus will come, he'll reveal something about himself, either make one of his I am statements or present himself in some way as the Messiah or the Christ. He gives some sort of foundational teaching about who he is. And then John sort of swings the camera and we get the reaction shot, what the crowd does with this, how they respond to him, either through accepting his word, rejecting his word, being confused. Uh, and so we're in that pattern back and forth, Jesus presenting himself, people reacting. And this morning, we're back to another reaction shot. And that's been the culmination of Jesus' teaching coming off of the Feast of Booths. If you recall, this is how Jesus ended his series of teachings across the whole Feast of Booths there in Jerusalem at the temple. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, as Ben taught us last week, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So that's kind of where Jesus left his teaching is if you come to me, I will not only satisfy you, but I will turn you into a source of living waters. And now we're going to pan back and see what the crowd does with this teaching. And there's a very interesting diversity in the responses to Jesus. And here's the interesting thing about whenever Jesus reveals himself is that he doesn't only reveal himself, but in his revelation, our responses reveal us. I had a professor uh, in college I wandered into a Shakespeare class. I was like, I like Shakespeare. And I didn't know what the numbers after the class meant. And so I didn't know that like, if you're a first semester freshman, if it has a 400 after the class, you might want to wait. And so yeah, he, he caught me the first day of class. He's like, you aren't supposed to be in here, are you? <laughs> but I love Shakespeare. And he just kind of laughed. Uh, he's like, you, you probably, you need to quit. I said, can I try? And he's like, you're a glutton for punishment, but okay. But we worked through that class, and it was one of the toughest classes I ended up taking in college, but it was great. But I remember we got to Hamlet finally, you know, Hamlet. And he gets to Hamlet, and he has this big copy of, of Shakespeare, and it's just falling apart. You know, all the, all the plays are basically inserted, the binding shot, and he flips open to Hamlet, and he glares at the whole class, and he says, you do not read Hamlet. Hamlet reads you. <laughs> There's a lot of professors where that would not have worked. You just start laughing. But like all of us were terrified uh, to actually begin reading this play. He said, this play is written in such a way that everything you think you know about Hamlet is just you revealing what's really going on in you, not actually in the play. So I don't know if he entirely made that point through the, the course, but in many ways... There are compelling figures, there are compelling characters, even in stories, that as you interact with them, you begin to realize they show you something of your own heart in a way that's uncanny. 
And nothing does that more than the actual person of Jesus Christ, who as the perfect revelation of the perfect man who was God, ends up showing up a mirror in which we almost cannot help but to reveal ourselves. In the teaching of Christ that's going to immediately follow our passage, Jesus is about to give us another one of his great I am statements. And that will come up in chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus again speaks to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The biggest problem that LED lights had when they first came out was that they essentially were a deception. They did not actually emit true white light. And that meant that they could not actually reproduce the colors that were in the room they were shining in. So if you looked at the LED, you'd think that looks white. But if you shown the LED around the room, you'd say, why do all the colors look wrong? Because it was incapable of producing a full range of colors. But when a true full spectrum light is brought into a room or into a space, there's a great one that hangs in the sky, it reveals things for what they really are. It's able to reproduce and to reveal reality as it truly is. And this morning we're going to see how the light of the teaching of Jesus reveals the true colors of people, the true codes of people who listen to him much like a prism does. There's no such thing as a neutral response to Jesus. And so in our text this morning, we will see five shades of division over Jesus so that we might examine our own hearts and consider what is revealed about us as well. And our passage breaks down neatly into two groups, the responses of the popular crowd and the responses of the political rulers. And so we'll look at that first group now in verses 40 to 44. Some of the people, verse 40, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So a pretty straightforward group of verses. There's two positive statements about Jesus. Two negative and skeptical statements about Jesus. And it's a great summary of the basic way in which the crowd, even today, tends to break down in their response to Jesus. And let's look at those positive statements first. The first response we see to Jesus is those who are eagerly right in their identification of him. Eagerly right. Some of the people, verse 40... When they heard these words, these, this group, the people, you recall, this is the term that John uses to refer to the crowds that are following Jesus. In this case, the crowds that are also gathered in Jerusalem for this Feast of Booths. This is a group that's separate from the Jews or the scribes and Pharisees or the rulers, which are the terms that John uses to designate primarily the leaders and the rulers of Israel those in the upper political class. So we're seeing the reaction of the common people here. And what are they saying? We're saying two things. This is certainly the prophet, and others are saying, this is the Christ. We've discussed before this term, the prophet. That is a technical term. It's not 
a prophet, but it's the prophet. This is the prophet that they were waiting for that was promised back in Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said, there will come another prophet from among you like me, a prophet like Moses. And specifically, it says, you shall listen to him. And so the people of Israel were waiting for this future prophet that would come with the power and in the role of Moses. And they knew whenever he showed up, you needed to listen closely to what he would say. And so some of the people have been listening to their synagogue lessons and they're going, wait a minute, Jesus feels a lot like Moses did. He's giving us bread like Moses did. He's causing there to be living waters flowing from us like Moses caused living waters to flow from the rock in the wilderness. And they're saying, this is this is must be it. We need to pay attention to what he's saying. Others think it's Christ. And if you're reading your Bible, you're like, what's this Christ and Messiah and Messiah and Christ? They're the same word. Messiah is the, the transliteration from the Hebrew. Mashiach becomes Messiah. And then Christ, Christos, is just the Greek word for Messiah. So if you see Christ or Messiah in your Bible, exact same thing. So others are saying, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah, the promised deliverer, the promised redeemer. What's interesting is that at this time in Israel's history, most of the people thought that that was going to be two separate figures, the prophet and the Messiah. So they're not both saying, hey, we think this is the prophet and the Messiah. Some are saying, we think this is the prophet. And others are saying, we think this is the Messiah. They think they're going to be two separate people. And you can understand why they're so eager about this at this period of time. They're all gathered in Jerusalem. They're all celebrating the Feast of Booths. They're all recalling God's provision and looking forward to that time when God will establish his people permanently. And so the idea that there might be the great long-awaited prophet, the great long-awaited Messiah among them, just fills their hearts with hope. Because these aren't questions, are they? It doesn't say that people said, do you think this could be the prophet? No, they're saying this is certainly the prophet. This is the Christ. The people are confidently declaring the identity of Jesus. And they're actually both right. They think they're debating between two different people, but they're debating actually one person who fulfills two different roles. And this is the first response to Jesus that we see this morning. And it really, in some ways, is the most exciting, especially for those of us that love Jesus, to see people hear him and to respond to him correctly. But this can also be one of the most deceptive responses to Jesus. A couple lessons for us this morning. Quick acceptance of Jesus is often a sign of true, but as of yet untested faith. Quick acceptance of Jesus can be a sign of true but untested faith. And for some of you children this morning, you're perfect examples of this. Your parents have taught you about Jesus. They've taught you who he was, that he was God and he was man, that he came, that he was born, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death he didn't deserve so he could pay the penalty of your sins, that he rose again to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice And that if you will ask God for forgiveness through Jesus, you will be saved. Some of you have heard that message and your hearts just immediately said, yeah, yes, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is my Savior. And how cool was it even last week to see some of you baptized with that very confession. 
We do not want to look down on a young or quick confession because they can be sincere and true, even from our little children. I'm really thankful for the many in our church who invest in the children's ministry or teaching the gospel even to my own children. That's an important ministry. That faith is not yet tested. It will be. But that doesn't mean it's not genuine. And so one t- sometimes when we see, even here in the crowd, some of these people were just for the first time hearing the teachings of Jesus, just for the first time being exposed to them, and their hearts just leapt at truth, and they said, this is it, this is the one. And it was sincere, even though it was quick. But also, quick acceptance of Jesus can be a sign of spiritual expectations, not spiritual affections, of more curiosity than true Christianity. And this I see, sadly, often as the plight of many youth who have early in life said, yeah, I follow Jesus because that's what they are expected to do. Who when they get to high school or middle school, they're trying to act on fire for Jesus because that's what you're supposed to be. But they're like the seed that fell upon the rocky soil. And you can almost watch as the plants that grow up so quickly begin to be choked out as the sun comes up and the depth of their roots is revealed to be virtually non-existent. Not everybody in this crowd who said, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, had actually come to trust him as such, including one among the very twelve who will betray him. And so when we see a quick acceptance of Christ and a quick rejoicing in him, we should be excited. But we should also know that that is often when the enemy will come in and seek to quickly remove the seed from the path to bring distractions of the world to choke out or to seek to make sure that the roots of faith never really take root at all. And for you young people in this room, I just want to challenge you. Deep Roots are much more important than radical shoots. Deep roots in the word of God and trusting him with your heart is much more important than outside signs of religiosity and passion and radical whatever. And finally, a quick acceptance of Jesus can be a sign of culmination after cultivation. And you'll see, I see this most often in adults who have lived a life apart from Christ and they've been out in the world and they've gone through Ecclesiastes, but like the real life, I'm in it edition. I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried this, I've tried that. I've scooped up the broken pieces of my heart more times than I can count. I know what doesn't work. And then they encounter Christ in his word. And the light bulb comes on. And though it might seem like this instant transition, it really is not. It's the culmination of decades of their heart being prepared to recognize truth when it comes. And that's a glorious thing to see as well. When people respond to Christ with an accurate response to who he is, we need to be excited We also need to know that that can actually mean a lot of different things are going on under the surface. 
And that's why our faith is not about getting people to the point of conversion. The mission given to the church is about making disciples and then teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Discipleship is about producing mature, deep-rooted disciples of Jesus Christ. And so even though it's exciting to see people in the crowd responding this way, there's probably some who are yelling, this is the Christ on this day, who are yelling, crucify him on another day. Some are eagerly right, though we'll see whether or not it lasts. But there are some who are just as eagerly wrong. And that's our next point this morning. Some are eagerly wrong. Verse 41, still others were saying, so the second part of verse 41 there, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So this is the rejoinder for those that are saying, it's the prophet, it's the Christ. Others are going, now hold on a second. They are aware that Jesus has traveled down from the north. They are eliminating Jesus from their consideration of being the Messiah or the prophet because of his place of origin. And we're going to find that there's some scriptural reason for that in a minute. But throughout this passage, and it's really going to become clear when we get to the Pharisees and chief priests, there is a strong undertone of cultural prejudice behind this accusation as well. Galilee was viewed as being totally out in the sticks, borderline illiterate, intellectually insignificant. In short, it's viewed as everything that Ben Orchard pretends Green Acres is. (laughs) There's more than prejudice going on, but that's a significant part of this accusation. If Jesus is from Galilee, then how can he be worth paying any attention to at all? But verse 42 shows that at least some of them had also been listening to their Torah readings, and they were saying, yeah, and Galilee's an even bigger problem than just being from that weird place. If you think about it, if you're in a country where the southern part is where the temple is, and then right above you is the Samaritans that you hate with all your guts, and then right above them is a bunch of other Jews that talk funny, and right next to them are ten big cities full of Gentiles, they just kind of go, they're not right. The real believers are down here. Those are the weirdos up there. But in verse 42, we see that they had noticed that there were also two specific prophecies about Jesus that they thought could not be true. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And they're right, of course. Messianic prophecies in the Psalms, like Psalm 89.4, promise that the Messiah would be from the line of David. And in Micah 5.2, it specifically identifies Bethlehem, the city of David, as the place where the Messiah would be born. So Jesus can't be the prophet. He can't be the Christ because Galilee is in the wrong direction, both culturally and biblically. If you want to get to Galilee, you drive due north. If you want to get to Bethlehem, you drive due south. And we know which direction Jesus came from, so he can't be the Messiah. Verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but not one laid hands on him. So the crowd reaches now a stalemate. Some identify Jesus as the deliverer of Israel. 
Others denounce him as an imposter. Some want us to seize him as a liar and a blasphemer, but they're unable to carry out their desire against Jesus because there's too many there that are supporting him and they're afraid to take the first step. And that word for division here is the word we get our English word schism from. So there, I told you I got it from, in, from here somewhere. That's where we get our English word schism. And for you little kids, what's schism mean? I know, actually, some of you probably know. Schism, it's not a word we use very often anymore. It means to divide things, but it's more than just like neatly dividing something. So it's not the kind of word you would use like, you know, we need to schism with this pizza so that everybody gets a slice that's the same size, right? It's not like uh, you go to a job with some buddies and you finish the task and you get paid and you divide up the money among everybody and here's your schism, here's your schism, here's your schism. It's a word that almost everywhere else in the New Testament that it's used means to tear, to rip apart in a way that causes damage to both sides. It's a strong division. Jesus divides people. He demands some sort of conclusion about his claims. And this can do real damage to relationships as some of you, as some of you know. The rejection of some of the people in this crowd opens up this rift right there in the middle of the temple. But the rift and the rejection of Jesus that we read about here is based on error. Do you see their mistake? Prejudice blinds us. Prejudice blinds us. He can't be the Messiah. He's from Galilee. That's an errant thought when it comes from a place of prejudice. Rejecting someone because of who they are on the outside, because of how they talk, because of where they come from, that betrays a belief that God works through those who have something impressive in themselves that they can offer God, rather than a belief in a God who uses whoever he wants to do whatever he wants. God can use anyone, anywhere. And boy, are we in a culture that reeks of this kind of prejudice right now, aren't we? If you find out someone's a Republican, or you find out someone's a Democrat, if somebody's white, or if somebody's black, that just often comes with this multitude of conclusions about that person that may or may not even be remotely true. As our culture becomes more and more dominated by identity politics, what it means is we start to treat people like a set of presumptions about them instead of actually getting to know people. There are many common prejudices that keep people even away from Christ today. Christianity is such an old religion, it can't be relevant today we're in a culture that's prejudiced against the old and we love the new the bible is anti-science and therefore it can't speak of facts the exclusivity of the gospel is bigoted and anti-love the bible represents oppressive patriarchy it's a tool of colonialization there are so many prejudices our culture has against Jesus Christ. 
And it causes people to dismiss him before they even hear him. That has consistently been interesting to me how many people vehemently reject Christ who have never read what he had to say for himself because of prejudice. And we can't just blame those who reject Christ. I mean, this can be a problem even for us in the church. How many of us don't turn necessarily away from Christ, but we reject his teachings because of our own assumptions and prejudices? Well, it can't mean that. Well, my Jesus would never say that. Well, God would never do that. And we're willing to twist and overlook what God has said about himself because of our own prejudices about what we think is right, what we think is wrong, what we think is wise, what we think is foolish, instead of presenting God our lives and saying, inscribe your compass on my heart. I'm not going to reorient my Bible to where I think north is. Prejudices blind us, and assumptions misguide us. Assumptions misguide us. The crowd had correctly remembered that the Messiah had to be from David's line and born in David's city. And they said, well, that eliminates Jesus because he lives in the north, not in the south, which is the direction of Bethlehem. And therefore, he probably comes from one of those hicks up in Galilee. He has nothing to do with David because all of his people are down here. They were in the temple, one of the most impressive archival records-keeping places in all of the ancient world. Literally, about a stone's throw from where they were having this debate, they could have gone and said, Excuse me, Mr. Pharisee librarian, sir. Who were Jesus' parents? Where was he born? Like all good Jews, Jesus had been presented in the temple on the eighth day. And all of his records would have been marked down and publicly available. Uh, it turns out he is from Joseph and Mary. Did you know that they're both direct descendants of Davidic lineage? And you're not going to believe this, but he was actually born in Bethlehem of all places, then moved to Egypt and then back up to Nazareth. This was not secret information. It was just information they'd had no interest in seeking. So easy to assume we know what's true only to realize we're missing a critical part of the story. This, it's been bizarre to see how many times this has played out recently, just on the national scene, right? Event happens. This is clearly what took place and what it means. Oh, there's a video. Whoops. We are so quick to jump to conclusions when we've only heard one side of a story, when we've only seen one piece of information, when we've only got one impression from a second or third hand source. A really common way of rejecting along Jesus along these lines is to have somebody come and say, Hey, Jesus might have had some good things to say, but your Bible is so full of errors, there's no way it can be true. And so they dismiss Jesus as some mythical figure in this book full of mistakes. Dig deeper. Dig deeper. I don't know, perhaps you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, there's things about Christianity that I like. I come to church maybe because my family's here and I like to be part of that. And there's some, there's some things about religion that are interesting to me and I enjoy the fellowship and the community. But yeah, you know, you can't really take the Bible literally. 
You can't really believe what it says about salvation and sin and God and forgiveness and creation and judgment and hell. Just Google it. Everybody knows. The Bible's full of errors. I would just challenge you. You want to bet? Dig deeper. This is not the Bible's first rodeo. It's been capably fending off objections for over two millennia. And it can put its big boy pants on and handle your criticisms. I want to challenge you. Dig deeper. Ask yourself, what if the Bible was allowed to make its own defense of itself? What would it say? Come talk to to somebody, maybe somebody sitting around you this morning and say, hey, I've got real questions about your Bible that are concerning to me. Can we have a deep talk? I would be available, love to talk to anybody. But don't dismiss God's word because of your assumptions. Don't dismiss Jesus Christ because of your assumptions. They will guide you astray. Whatever the reason people have for rejecting Jesus ultimately... The result is inevitably this tug of war in a culture that then becomes divided between its opinions and passions. And that's where the crowd is at now. They're in this tug of war, and some want to grab Jesus, and they're afraid to do so, and some think he's the Messiah, but they're afraid to declare him to be so publicly because there's those they know that might get them arrested. And so there's just this tug of war in the culture there, here playing out in the temple. But what often pushes a cultural division like this into dangerous territory is when the division in the crowd becomes a division in those who are in power. And that's what we're going to see is also taking place. There are three shades of political opinion that are also going on. Look with me at verses 45 to 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. The camera now pans away from the crowds milling around in the temple, debating the identity of Jesus, and it follows this group of officers as they leave the crowd and go up to where all the big muckety-mucks are hanging out, where all the movers and shakers are observing the milieu going on. And we're going to now see how those in power respond to Jesus Christ. And there's this first category of response, which is the unexpectedly captivated the unexpectedly captivated. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chiefs, priests, and Pharisees. You may be surprised at first here to see the reference to chief priests in plural, if you've been reading your Old Testament. How many chief priests were there at any one time? One. So what does this mean, chief priests? Aha, one of those errors in the Bible we were just talking about. No. Turns out, When Christ was alive, there was some shenanigans going on. There was a dude by the name of Annas who loved power. And even though legally he could only be the chief priest for his term, he figured out how to stay in charge and to be at the top by 
puppet ruling through his sons and son-in-laws, five of them, including the current technical high priest, Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. And so there were two people that claimed the authority of the chief priest. And so this is not a historical error. This is actually an indication that the author knew exactly what was going on politically when he wrote. The second group we see here is the Pharisees. We've already met them several times. They are the experts in the law, right? They're those that taught you what you're supposed to do with virtually every area of your life and did so with the authority of this is what God wants you to do. All 600 plus laws of the Old Testament and multiple times that many laws they had added on top for good measure. And then the officers are those who have come in now to present themselves before these chief priests and Pharisees. And they said to him, the chief priests and Pharisees, to the officers, why didn't you bring him in? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. You can understand why the chief priests and Pharisees are surprised to see the officers empty-handed because the officers had been given a job. Back in John 7.32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. These officers had been dispatched with the job of arresting Jesus. And now they're back, and they're just kind of wandering in. And the chief priests and Pharisees are like, did you forget something? A few things you should know about these officers. First of all, like all who served in the temple, these officers were from the tribe of Levi. They were Levites. They were trained in the law. They knew their Bible. These weren't people that are like, I don't know about religion, but I don't know. So he was saying stuff, and I was just confused. These are experts in the law, experts in the Old Testament. Secondly, they're officers. Right? These are the people who go and stop trouble. They are used to hearing somebody running off his mouth, maybe after a little bit too much Purim wine, and all of a sudden he's decided he's the Messiah. Okay, buddy. Yes, you've memorized a lot of the Old Testament, but come with me, right? You're done. Off we go. These are guys that are used to going in, diffusing an intense situation, arresting troublemakers, running off their mouth about all kinds of nonsense in the temple. And it was an important role because here's the deal. If the Jews did not police their temple themselves, the Romans sitting in the fort overlooking the temple courts were happy to come down and do it for them. And so they had a high incentive to shut down any trouble. So when the Pharisees said, there's a troublemaker, go get him. That's what the officers did. They were very good at it. But here's the thing. They were completely captivated with the words of Jesus. And so they come as part of the crowd, and they, they're coming to surround and eventually to seize Jesus, and they're hearing what he's saying. And they're going, that tracks, that tracks, that's true. I've never connected that. Wow. And it's like they completely forget about their mission. And Jesus reaches the culmination of his teaching and leaves the temple. It's like they just kind of look at each other like, I guess we go back to the office now. They're completely captivated by the words 
of Jesus. Jesus is still confounding the wise with his words today. You see that sometimes even in secular culture, thinkers like psychologist Jordan Peterson, atheist Douglas Murray, look at the words of Jesus and say, this is the only foundation you can build human flourishing on. Nobody in the history of man has had ideas this good, even when they don't believe in him. The words of Jesus are confounding, they are convicting, they are convincing, they are compelling, if you'll actually listen to them. If you'll actually listen to them. Don't just listen to what others have said about Jesus and come to a conclusion until you've heard him out for yourself. Children, read your Bibles. Don't just read books about your Bibles. Don't just be content with picture books about your Bibles. Learn to read your Bible so you can read the words of Jesus. Picture books about the Bible are great for a season. And you youth, don't just read the packet your sociology professor puts into your hands at class. Read Christ and let him speak for himself. Let him present himself on his own terms. If you're wondering where to start, maybe you have somebody that you love who doesn't know Christ and you're saying, I want to introduce them to Christ. What do I do? What verse do I take him to? Take him to John. This would be great. We're preaching the study and through it, so there's some background information that can be helpful. And just say, hey, here's what I want to do. I want, I want us to go through the book of John together so that you can wrestle with Christ as he presents himself. And let's read a chapter a week. You read it over the course of this week. You read one chapter, write down everything that bugs you, everything that confuses you, everything that you notice. And then we'll talk together. We'll Zoom or go get coffee or whatever. And we'll talk about it. And let people wrestle with Christ as he presented himself might be surprised how more effective that can be than saying, hey, you really need to read this book about Jesus. If you finish John, great, move on. Do Ephesians, do Romans. Uh, Teach them about Christ. Thirdly, come to a decision. Come to a decision. It's not enough for these officers to simply say, boy, that guy's amazing. Anyway, lunchtime. If you have realized that Jesus speaks in a way nobody else speaks, at least have the decency to come to a decision about what to do with him. Don't simply be interested, entertained, convicted, have this catharsis of religious zeal, and then move on to the next thing. Jesus is not the ultimate TED Talk giver. He must be accepted as Lord or rejected as a fraud must have been a little shocking to have been the chief priests and Pharisees and see all these officers just kind of shrugging their shoulders and shaking their heads and looking around at each other. And you would have thought that they would have been at least a little curious. Man, these officers do not respond this way to other people. Maybe we need to go down and hear this Jesus out. Maybe we need to find out what he's really saying. Maybe we need to find out what he's really doing and see if there's something to it. might think that would be what would happen, but sadly... 
we know that's not how these guys roll, is it? There, there is this second response among the political class here, and that is unrelenting cynicism. Unrelenting cynicism. Verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? What a cynical, sarcastic, more than a little whiny response that is. Notice what they don't say. No question for clarification. No interest in what makes Jesus unique. No attempt to investigate personally. And notice what they do see. Do say. The first thing out of their mouth is the logical fallacy. For you kids out there, these are important. The logical fallacy of begging the question. That means assuming an answer in the question. When they say, have you been led astray? They're assuming that leading or listening to Jesus is leading you astray. They've already come not just to the point of, of questioning, they've come to the point of already having rendered judgment on Jesus. And boy, you'll get this today. You'll see it at school, you'll read it on the internet, you'll see it around. You don't actually believe that mythical nonsense in the beginning of Genesis, do you? Well, hold on a sec. Believe, yes, but show me this mythical nonsense you speak of. Don't let people pull you in by begging the question. It's a way of beating you down. And they've been doing it to Jesus since Jesus walked this earth because, frankly, there's no other good argument against him. And notice the next thing they do is another logical fallacy, an appeal to authority. And we're going to find out in just a second, they were wrong. The consensus of all the Pharisees is that Jesus is a loser. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? We all agree and then look at verse 49. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. And now they do what's often the next step, right? You, you first, you make fun of someone by begging the question. You appeal to authority in a way that makes you feel stupid and left out and part of the other group if you don't agree. And then finally, you create the narrative of heroes and villains. And if you're on our side, you're a hero. And if you're on their side, you're a villain. If you're with us, you're among those who know everything. If you're part of them, that group out there, they don't even know the law. They're accursed. And when they said that, they should have all immediately resigned. Because what are they? They're the teachers of Israel. This is like a teacher, a third grade teacher, getting up in front of her class at the end of the semester and saying, you don't know anything. Well, then you're a terrible teacher. You should be fired. Right? This is how ridiculous. They're not thinking clearly. They spent their whole lives teaching these people the law. They don't know the law. Then that's your problem. And go look at this. To God's chosen people gathered in the temple for worship, they say they're all accursed. Really? In this little room is the only faithful remnant in all of Israel? Beware of language games. 
Beware of language games. Words have meanings, and they're important. Our culture uses language as nothing more than a lever to manipulate and pry people out of their convictions. Wish we had time to talk about this more. But listen to what people are saying and compare it to the unchanging, perfect language of Scripture, and you will see how many games are being played on us. Beware of the consensus of authorities. Beware of the consensus of authorities. Humanity is basically broken, which means the consensus of fallen man is usually going to be wrong. Listen to the voice of God. Let every man be found a liar and God be found truthful. Beware of moral outrage. Anybody getting a little nauseated every time you hear the word outraged? (laughs) Beware of moral outrage. It's often a pretense of pathos to avoid ever having to deal with logos or ethos. It's using heat and energy to betray the fact that there's no substance. Beware of these things. Avoid employing them. I'm sure none of us have ever uh, dialed up the emotions with our spouse because we know we've lost the argument. Or for children, when your mom tells you to do something and you realize there's no escape, tantrum time. This is part of our human fallen nature. But we have one final shade to consider briefly this morning. You want to write those down. Scribble fast. There is a reason here at the end, and there is a reason why it's last. It is the shade that hides from the cynical because it's afraid of being found out. And it's always a temporary shade. It must eventually fade into another shade. But it is a real and hopeful shade nonetheless, and that is those who are understandably cautious understandably cautious. Nicodemus enters the scene. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, verse 50, being one of them, said to them, this is a little humorous, nobody on the Pharisees believes in Jesus, does he? Next verse. And then Nicodemus, who just happened to be one of the group among which there is nobody who disagrees, disagreed by saying, Right? Consensus is rarely actually consensus. So I think John's throwing a little Galilean humor in here. Right after the Pharisees say, nobody among them believes Jesus, John says, remember that guy we met back in chapter 3 who was like totally into Jesus? Verse 51, he gives us a little bit of wisdom. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? This is the voice of reason. Dismissing without hearing the case and investigating the facts is the mark of a fool, not the mark of the wise. The Pharisees are proving that they are only hearers of the law and not doers by being unwilling to hear Jesus and find out what he's doing. Notice that Nicodemus here is not yet willing, though, to publicly take a stand for Jesus. He's still figuring out how to throw things in kind of on the sly. Give God time to do his work in people. Pray for those in power. Pray for those in leadership. Sometimes things are not as dire on the inside as they look on the outside because it's often the case that there are those that 
are seeking to be righteous, that are becoming convinced of Jesus Christ but are not yet willing to publicly take a stand, pray for those whose faith is emerging that God would give them courage because that's a big step to take. Give God time. Be gracious. Be patient. There are times we know somebody's wrestling. We want to sort of kick them through the door into heaven. Let God do his thing. Be faithful, be loving, but be patient just as your heavenly father is with you. But if you are one of those who's been sort of teetering back and forth, don't wait forever because tomorrow's not a promise. Because if Jesus is right, then there is no better day than today to stand for the truth. Step forward today. And then finally, cancel culture is evil. Cancel culture is evil. It disproves nothing. Reminded there was a a young lady during the Reformation, extremely brilliant, and the local university kicked a young professor out because he was preaching the doctrines of grace. They burned all of his books. They said anybody who preaches or teaches this stuff is going to be a heretic and tried and condemned and put to death. And this young lady challenged the entire university faculty to a public debate. And she said, you have silenced his argument. You have not disproven them. They turned her down. Whole faculty scared to debate a young lady in the Middle Ages. Ha! Some of you young ladies, life goals. (laughs) People are willing to change the facts as well, as we see here, to make a point especially when they know they can't be challenged. Did you see that? Search for yourself. See that no prophet comes from Galilee. They knew better. Jonah, Galilee. Nahum, Galilee. Prophets come from Galilee. They're just mad and they're willing to lie as long as they think they can silence the opposition. Don't ever employ that tactic. Don't be embarrassed or cowed by it. Speak the truth. And that brings us this morning then to our opportunity in communion to take our stand. Nicodemus did not stay on the fringes forever. He eventually did take his stand and he did it at the foot of the cross when he brought a hundred pounds of burial spices and together with Joseph of Arimathea laid our Savior to rest. The grace of God has been revealed to us. Jesus came. He taught us about himself. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And in the process, he completely satisfied the just wrath of God against my sin and against yours and provides for the forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us progressive victory over sin and the hope of eternity with the one who loved us most. What we do with these simple truths reveals not only who he is, but who we really are. And by God's grace, for many this morning, we are revealed to be the recipients of what we could never deserve. By faith in what Jesus has done, we declare that Jesus is the Christ. It's good to stop sometimes and just remember what it is that we're doing when we observe this simple ritual. What is communion? It's a meal taken together by the gathered church. It consists of the fruit of the vine and bread, symbols of Jesus' body 
and blood. Why do we observe it? Because he commanded us to. And he told us to remember his death for us and to proclaim it confidently until he returns. In Christ, we are part of a new and better covenant in Jesus. By his death, the law of the Old Testament and its demands are fulfilled, and we now receive grace in his finished work. And who can partake of this meal? Well, there are two requirements in Scripture for partaking of communion. The first is you need to have put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a family meal for the family of God. And if you're here this morning and you realize on those five shades we talked about, you are not one of those who has believed. We're really glad you're here. We would also ask you, because of how our Savior has established this meal of remembrance, to simply choose to forego partaking of this this morning. So we would invite you, even now, to accept him and join. But secondly, even if you are here in Christ, you must come with a heart prepared. Even for God's children, it is inappropriate to partake of communion with a heart filled with unrepentant sin. And even in the New Testament, God killed people in Corinth because they partook of communion with unrepentant sin. And so as we sing this song, let the words about the love of God be a meditation for us. But if we need to simply be quiet and pray and deal with ourselves and our Savior to prepare our hearts for communion. Let's do that. And then after the song, we'll partake together.